calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Realm presents Outliers, a Realm original. Episode 8. Fall is upon us. I've seen autumn red speckling the verdant green leaves in the trees. I've been at FOB far north now for nine weeks. To be precise, 64 days. You bet I'm keeping count. That's what the incarcerated do. Every day behind bars is another day of liberty lost. I'm basically a prisoner here, but I've worked my way into the role of a prison trustee by adopting a modified happy-go-lucky persona. Easy going. Grateful to have a place to call home disinterested by events and civilization at large, unconcerned about the passage of time. Which isn't true, but I'm no longer hooked to a lie detector machine. I'm able to keep up this pretense because I know girl is safe. For now, I've glimpsed her from time to time across the compound in the specimen exercise cage. Sometimes she sees me, but she never reacts. Neither do I. We both know we're being closely tracked by surveillance cameras. They've chopped off her silky chestnut hair, and shaved her head so she looks more like the others in her status group. She's still beautiful, to me. Captured outliers are housed in what is called the zoo by the staff. Modified kennels. Chain-link outdoor cages with sliding metal doors into concrete boxes that are heated in the winter and cooled in the summer. They've been given silver-colored mylar blankets to huddle under when they're outside. Outliers aren't considered human. Technically, they're animals, so humane treatment is required by law but medical and scientific experimentation is permitted, provided it's humane. In my view, any experimentation on humanoids or animals is not humane. It's a form of torture. I've read books on Nazi doctors. I can imagine that will ultimately happen to girl. I know what an outlier sounds like when it's in pain, in agony, like the outlier who walked into a blazing campfire like Frankenstein's monster years ago. Its dying howls gave me nightmares for months. I hear that same howl sometimes late at night, coming from the direction of the laboratories, where the lights are still on. 
I don't think the scientists realize how sound carries in a forest valley after dark. Or they don't care. Girl has been deemed status one, meaning she's undergoing reversion. These so-called specimens supposedly aren't experimented on. Rather, their metamorphosis is chronicled and observed. She's part of a study group whose incremental changes are closely noted, photographed, charted, results dutifully inserted in a graph. Status one outliers are valuable research subjects. She's not in immediate danger. That knowledge keeps me sane. For now. I've become an unpaid janitor. And a handyman. I start work at six in the morning and work until about four, seven days a week. A lot of hours, sure. But it's better than being locked in my room or in a cell. Or in a chain link cage. I think of my assigned tasks as doing chores. Like back in the compound. Dr. Roland gave me an MP3 player stockpiled with about a million songs from the last decade and I keep it in my coveralls pocket, the string-like earbud cords trailing across my chest. Teenagers like music, she told me. So I dance, gyrate, and sing along as I work, which I've learned is what is expected of someone my age. A stereotype. But I'm not listening to the music. The volume is turned as low as it can go. The music player is camouflage. I use it to disguise that I'm eavesdropping on every person I come in contact with, whether soldier or guard or scientist or support staff. Trying to get the lay of the land, gleaning whatever information I can, piecing it all together. A happy idiot grin plastered to my face while singing along or dancing to the music presumably playing in my ears. Patience is the key. Benign idiocy is my cover. Like all personnel, I wear my keycard badge around my neck at all times. Valid ID is critically important at a top-secret facility. Your ID gives you access to wherever you're authorized to go. For me, my range is pretty limited, though lately I've been given a bit more latitude. As a full human, my situation is much better than the captive outliers, but I can't leave the facility, ever. Technically, I'm still a minor, so I can be held by the state or government for my own protection until I'm an adult. Of course, my reaching adulthood would be a problem for the facility because I've seen too much. No too much. Way too much. So to curtail any discussions of what they should do with me, I've formally requested to remain at FOB far north as a staff handyman. My intention... I wrote convincingly in childlike block printing, is to reside here permanently. I had no interest in venturing into the outside world, into a realm where I've had no previous experience. FOB Far North has become my home. I wish it to remain so. Let them think whatever makes me the least threatening, as long as I can stay near girl. Dr. Rowland told me last week that my application for permanent status is being reviewed, but she believes I will be awarded a janitorial staff position when I turn 18. Apparently there is pay and benefits that come with the job. Medical, dental, and housing. Something called a 401k. I feign gratitude and relief. I think she bought it because it's what she wants to believe. She may be educated, but she's not immune to wishful thinking. I've become the orphaned feral child she's tamed. And besides, she and various interrogators from different alphabet letter agencies aren't done interviewing me about Da. Though they never say so directly. They just ask me to talk about my life with the man who took me in. I never veer off course from the first story I told Dr. Rowland, and I pretend to be glad to repeat it, over and over and over again. I learned, over the course of many interviews, that Da's birth name is Edward Allen Sanborn. That name, like my own, means nothing to me since I never heard it before. We were always just Da and boy. I tell this to anyone who will listen with absolute sincerity. I'm not lying about that. My quarters are a modular box, in a segregated area of the base, segregated in that I'm the only occupant in 20 temporary housing units adjoining the research facility. 
which is identified as Pod 6. These units had been built to house human evacuees from the contamination zone, but no unaffected humans has emerged from the north since the outbreak. I've been issued clothing, mostly jeans and t-shirts, socks and underwear, generic brands, even pajamas and slippers. There's a surveillance camera mounted in the corner of the ceiling. I pretend like I don't notice it anymore. I'm required to be in my quarters from the hours of 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. I'm not locked in, but an alarm will sound if I open my door. In the evening hours, after I've clocked out from my work by scanning my ID in my supervisor's office, I'm allowed to pick up my dinner from the kitchen service window and take it to the dining hall in pod six. The dining hall is a single table since I'm the only occupant, but there's a large refrigerator there stocked with drinks, water, fruit juices, sodas, and condiments. I eat alone since there's no one else in residence. After dinner, I'm allowed to spend time in the adjoining rec center. I'm not allowed access to live television, but I can watch movies selected from the collection of DVDs. I won't lie, I enjoy those. I've been systematically watching them all, especially the action-adventure movies. There's a computer connected to the web in the research facility library, but I haven't been granted access to that part of the grounds. Not yet. I've asked to be allowed to go into the library, but so far my request has been denied. Dr. Roland wants me to be able to read, though. If I want to order a book, I fill out a request slip, and the book is delivered to me along with my dinner within a couple days. I can obtain three books at a time, and I'm sure my choices are monitored. That's why I only check out boys' adventure tales, all books I read years ago, or else classic grand adventure stories that won't raise an eyebrow. Like Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, or Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe. Camouflage. I'm just a simple kid with simple, predictable tastes. What I want and don't have is access to the internet. I want to know what happened at the time of the change, how it all played out, what happened after Da fled north, how many people were infected, how many died. For all I know, FOB Far North is the last outpost of American civilization, though I now suspect otherwise. While emptying the outdoor trash can several weeks back, I spotted a soldier sitting on a bench during his break. He was chuckling while reading a handwritten letter. I glanced at the envelope as I shuffled by. The envelope wasn't old. The postage stamp had been canceled, probably by a machine. Somebody had written that letter and posted it. Somebody, most likely, from outside of FOB Far North. Somebody in civilization at large. What that looks like in the aftermath of the change, I have no idea. I know not to ask questions. Showing any sign of curiosity will curtail my limited freedom. And I need what freedom I have in order to get the hell out of here. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Ten weeks. 
70 days. My apparent lack of curiosity has paid off. Both soldiers and scientists alike have relaxed their guard around me. As an eager-to-be-of-service unpaid janitor and handyman, I have achieved value. I run errands for anyone who asks. I fix personal objects, like necklace clasps or holster buckles. I don't represent a threat. I'm neither contagious nor prone to talking back. I'm mild-mannered and unassuming. I've never once, since that first day, asked about girl. I exhibit zero curiosity. A kid who walks around with buds in his ears lost in music. I've melted into the background like the rest of the janitorial staff. I'm patient, because when I sort the trash at the recycling bins, if I stand in a certain way, I can glimpse girl in her kennel. Usually she's seated against the concrete wall, her knees drawn up to her chest. Cold. Miserable. But alive. The sight of her in a cage infuriates me, but I turn my rage into purpose. It galvanizes me. The more I can learn, the better equipped I am. Knowledge can be as significant a weapon as a bow or a gun. Dodd taught me that. Only one thing I saw shook me up enough so that my mask slipped for a second, but I don't think anyone saw. I'd passed a room where the light duty officers were stationed when they had an injury, like a sprained ankle, or maybe were recovering from a non-contagious minor illness. I'd assumed it was an office like any other, but this day when I walked by, pushing my wheelie trash can, I saw that the light duty soldier had propped the door open with a folded piece of paper. That was against regulation, but it gave me the opportunity to take a peek inside. The soldier was female, in uniform. Her dark hair scraped back so tight across her skull it tugged her eyebrows up. She had a cast on her right wrist. In front of her was a long table, not a desk. The table was piled high with old phone books. She was using a desk telephone, the kind that resembled the old rotary dial phones, but which had a raised button keypad. It was connected to a speakerphone, so I could hear not only the dial tone, but also the number tones as she dialed, then the ringing. She counted 20 rings, then hung up and went on to the next number, and the next, and the next. I thought of Da in the ski lodge, futilely waiting for the phone to ring. He was right. There was another human out there, probably wearing a uniform, while seated in the light duty room in front of a desk telephone. I pictured Da as I remember him best, a hale and hearty mountain man with an iron gray ponytail and a white beard, strong tanned hands with corded veins, wearing a red plaid jacket and old hiking boots, rifle in hand. Hello? 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 He says in my memory, pitched higher at the end, as if asking a question, hope burning in his eyes. Something cracks in my chest. Maybe the thin layer of ice that has coated my heart of late. The soldier looks up and shoots me a warning look. I grin an awkward hello as I stroll off. Sometimes memories hit you like a bat in the solar plexus. I took a couple of deep breaths, trying to let the feeling pass and the memory fade. By sheer force of will, I dragged myself back into the here and now. One afternoon, I managed to pilfer a facilities map printout from a surveillance station. In the last weeks, I've gleaned a lot, overheard a lot. Here's what I know. Nearly 800,000 people ceased to exist during the outbreak that came about as a result of the accident Da had described. Then thousands of humans mutated within hours as the contagion spread inland from the northeast seaboard. Mandatory evacuation of the entire area was ordered. The Ground Zero State was declared a disaster zone. The military was called in. Shoot to kill, as Da predicted, was the order. That's how most died. Not from the mutation, but from being shot to death by soldiers who saw only outliers not former human beings. Relatives never learned what happened to their loved ones, other than that they died. 
Those who witnessed the mutations, but weren't infected themselves, were financially compensated by a government agency when they signed a confidentiality agreement not to talk to the press or media. Most signed. Those who refused disappeared. In the tabloid press, conspiracy theories abounded. Sometimes conspiracies aren't just theories. The outliers, the press reported, had sprung from an extraterrestrial virus brought back inadvertently from an unmanned exploratory mission to Mars. The return rocket had broken up as it re-entered Earth's atmosphere, and the resultant debris field in the frigid northeast became ground zero for a dormant but lethal cellular mutating virus that had been released into the atmosphere. Pure fiction. Not even close to the truth. Still, imaginative. Jules Verne would have been impressed. The upside. No legal liability for the true malefactor. No Exxon oil spill style settlements. Insurance companies claimed the resulting cataclysmic plague to be an act of God. Presuming, of course, that God resides over Mars. Many people were infected, the press duly reported. But the contagion was contained to a specific geographic area. At least that much was true. No reason for the country at large to panic. Even if nearly a million people disappeared from the face of the Earth virtually overnight. No mention of a well-meaning raid by environmental activists gone wrong. No mention of a biological weapon. No hint of a man-made plague. After 30 days, an executive branch press release was distributed globally. Taking a page from the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, it proclaimed that the extraterrestrial virus had been completely eradicated, but that the original contamination zone would remain off-limits by executive orders for 50 years. They failed to mention that the outliers still existed. This wasn't all I learned. Soldiers tell each other war stories when they think they're not overheard. It passes the time. I absorb everything I hear on the sly. The contamination zone was contained within days. It took nearly three weeks for the pandemic to be neutralized in geographical areas to the south of Ground Zero. The contagion was effectively stopped in its tracks. To the south, civilization. Humans. To the north, the infected. Outliers. And, unbeknownst to anyone, Da and me. The military wanted to raise the entire infected area to the ground using everything short of nuclear bombs, killing every living thing. The containment was ultimately ordered, not extermination. The scientists were eager to study the mutants. The powers that be realized there might be significant profits stemming from the research. The scientists won out. Only those with top secret authorization at FOB Far North know the truth. Mars had nothing to do with the outbreak. The Red Planet had been a convenient scapegoat. I only know this because, like I said, I listened intently every chance I could and put all the pieces together. But I've recently come to realize that no one here cares what I overhear. They all know I'll be euthanized rather than set free. So what does it matter what I overhear? I'll never have the opportunity to repeat what I've heard. Ever. Now I'm under no illusions about my fate. I won't be invited to join the janitorial staff when I turn 18, and there will be no 401k with my name on it. That's simply the placation narrative Dr. Rowland has put forth to keep me malleable. That keeps me willing to answer the questions of any authority seeking answers I might be able to provide. Without girl, without knowing she's near, I might have given up or become combative. But because of the proximity of girl, I continue to gather information with the frenetic energy of a squirrel hiding acorns for the upcoming winter months. About this forward operating base, FOB far north abuts the fence that stretches for miles and miles effectively cutting off all access to land to the north. No humans are allowed beyond the border fence, except the biosuited soldiers who secure incoming outliers, and that's only for a distance not to exceed 50 yards. The entire electrified fence line is patrolled by soldiers and or drones and surveillance cameras and motion detectors. 
when an outlier is detected, an armed response unit in full biohazard gear is deployed to subdue it. Then they exfiltrate, retreating within minutes behind the perimeter fence. That's exactly how it happened with Girl and me. The sky above the contamination zone is a no-fly zone. All commercial and military air traffic has been permanently diverted. No satellites are positioned overhead. The press and the public have been told that only wildlife lives within the zone, like Chernobyl. The scientists are confident that all specimens at large will eventually migrate to them. Outliers are drawn to the warmth. If they venture anywhere, it will be to the south. After the 50 years are up, when the quarantine period is over, scientists in full biohazard gear will be allowed into the contamination zone, but only under very restricted circumstances. They have yet to figure out the full virulence or dormancy factors of the contagion. Until then, all research is conducted at the perimeter, at the top secret laboratories where I currently reside. According to a schematic I pilfered, FOB far north stretches not only along the fence line, but to the south for miles, millions of acres in total, all seized through eminent domain during the disaster. There are five zones in total at the facility. The lower the number, the greater access restriction. The fence line is the most restricted area. It's called Red Zone 1. This zone abuts the giant fence separating the facility from the contamination zone. The electrified fence stretches the entire length, even across rugged terrain. On the map, it looks like a border with a moat. The entire fence is surveilled with high-tech monitoring equipment that can detect movement, whether of ectotherms or endotherms. Anti-drone missiles are mounted the length of the fence to keep out unauthorized viewers, presumably the curious and the media, especially the conspiracy theorists. All along the fence are posted signs. All humans who work in Red Zone 1 are required to wear protective clothing and breathing apparatus. Only top clearance soldiers and scientists are allowed near the fence. They're the only ones who know about the existence of the outliers in the open land to the north. Red Zone 2 is the research wing, where all captured outliers are housed, including Girl. The scientists have their laboratories and offices there, and their quarters too, since most live on site either permanently or for six months at a time. I'm housed in Red Zone 2 as well. I just learned that there's a crematorium here. The smoke smells vaguely chemical, like bleach. I've seen the smokestacks for weeks now, but I only just realized what it's used for. Biological remains of outliers who've died in custody, from natural causes or otherwise. They're not human after all, is what one of the soldiers said to me while on a coffee break. Fucking mutants. We ought to fry them all. I just smiled head bobbing in mindless agreement. Blue Zone 3 consists of military barracks, tactical gear, munitions and weaponry are stored there too, tanks, RPGs, enough artillery for a full-scale hot war. Blue Zone 4 is a complete town, like a boom town that suddenly came into being all at once during the gold rush. The facility staff lives there. There's a grocery store, a school, a park, a bank. Several thousand people live on the grounds. Families and support staff are not privy to what goes on in the red zones, and they are under orders not to speculate if they want to be paid or protect their family pensions. Green Zone 5 is basically a huge delivery bay and incinerator. At the border of Green Zone 5 is another massive fence with military guards and electronic gates. The entire facility has been designed so that no captured outlier gets out, and so that no unauthorized persons get in. With careful planning and a lot of luck, the weakness of this design assumption is something I can exploit. You're listening to Outliers, narrated by Rory Culkin. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away.
Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Outliers is executive produced by Dave Beasley and narrated by Rory Culkin. Created by Cassandra Wells and Dave Beasley. Based on the novella Outliers by Cassandra Wells. Produced for Realm by Alexis Latshaw and Haley Wagreich. Additional sound design and editing by Rory O'Shea. Cover art by Kendall Thomas and Michał Krasnopolski. Krasnopolsky.